Who was Jesus? He was a maverick, a perceived rebel with a cause, a rabbi against the grain of what a rabbi should be. He didn't act like people thought he should. He didn't associate himself with who people thought he should. He was for the down and for the out, the underdogs, the misfits. And it's not just who was Jesus, it's also who is Jesus. When he died on a cross for our sins, he rose again three days later. He defeated death. The one who was became the one who is. He's not just a past tense ideal, but a present tense life changer. The past tense inspiration became the present tense king. The past maverick became the present master. He's the way, the resurrection, and the life, the good shepherd. He's the light of the world, the true vine, and apart from him, we can do nothing. Jesus, and Jesus alone, is our true north. Hey, CCB, welcome to our campus. We're so glad that you're here. You guys look good. In fact, some of you look better in masks than you used to. This is awesome. Hey, my name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors on staff. And I wanted to give you a little life hack today. If you ever get caught on the open ocean, you don't know where you are, you're just drifting around the open ocean, you're gonna want one of these. It's called a sextant. It was invented in 1731. It looks super complicated. It's really not. It is, you got this tube here, and if you're on the open ocean, you, you look through the tube, and what you're looking at is this circle, it's got half of it is a window, the other half is a mirror. So you're seeing two things at once. And the mirror reflects to this upper mirror that looks at a light in the sky. Could be the sun, moon, stars. But if you can get that light in the right hand of the mirror, then this adjustment knob here allows you literally to pull the light from the sky and align it directly with the horizon. And as soon as you have the light of the sky, with the horizon, and you look at a specific time, this angle will tell you exactly where you are on the ocean and what way you need to go. Now, you'll probably never use one of these because you're probably not gonna be stranded on the open ocean. But I look around today and I see a lot of people stranded on a spiritual ocean. They're just kind of adrift. And we don't know what direction to go and the waves are all around us and we just feel lost. Wouldn't it be cool if we had a spiritual sextant that we could find our way in this maze of life? That's what I want to talk about today because Jesus actually did give us a spiritual sextant in the Gospel of John. We, we've been looking at these I am statements in this True North series. Jesus said seven times in John, I am. I am the good shepherd, I am the vine, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But this one, Man, it's a big one. John chapter eight, verse 12, this is our spiritual sextant. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Like that's a bodacious big statement, I'm the light of the world. And it doesn't matter whether you look at it through the lens of science or scripture, it's both big. Yeah, but we are modern people living in a modern world, so we know more about light than ever before. Light is the simplest of all elements, and yet we don't even know for sure what it is. 
Part of light has, the, has the properties of a particle, but also the properties of a wave. Here's what we do know about light. Light is fast. I mean, not just lightning fast. Light is 50 times faster than lightning. Traveling at 186,000 miles per second. So it can go around the world seven times in one second, 1,001. That's fast. And we also know about light that almost all of our light comes from the sun. It's a, a medium to smallish sized star. It, it, it burns, it's like, a, it's, it's like 100 times larger than the earth in diameter. But because of its volume, you can actually fit 1.3 million Earths inside the volume of the sun. That's big and hot, like Phoenix summers, nothing. The surface of the sun burns at 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. But if you drill down into the core of the sun, I wouldn't advise it, but if you did, 25 million degrees. Sun's hot. So it's no surprise that the sun produces a lot of energy. You know how much? Every second, the sun produces the equivalent energy of a billion atom bombs. So Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Really? Like, that's a big statement, right? But if you actually move from science to scripture, it gets bigger. So the, the rabbis in those days, they didn't know the science that we know. So pretend that you're a rabbi, you got your yarmulke on and you transport 2,000 years ago and you're in the temple and you hear Jesus say, I'm the light of the world. What's the first thing you think about? What is the first thing you think of? It's the first thing that was created the very first day when God said, let there be light. Boom. Sun, moon, stars, and a billion galaxies behind them. And so the rabbis, when they heard this statement, God is light, they, they considered God not just the source of light, but light itself. So, for example, the apostle John, in his little letter, he said, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. The Apostle Paul, God dwells in unapproachable light. And Jesus comes along and says, I'm the light of the world. What's he saying? Like, does he really believe that he is God? You can imagine how difficult that would be to absorb. And if you keep tracing light in the Bible, it gets even bigger, actually. Because in Genesis, God is the light of the world. He created the sun, moon, stars, and galaxies. That's the light of the world. The next book of the Bible, Exodus, has this story. You probably saw the movie of Moses and the Israelites walking through the, the, the sea on dry ground. And in the desert, the Bible, the dominant use of light in Exodus is about this pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. It was the light that led Israel through the desert. So you go from light of the world, book one, to the light of the nation, book two. Book three, Leviticus. Like, who actually reads that, right? It's, it's all about the tabernacle, and the tabernacle becomes the temple, and you've got these, you know, sacrifices and things like that. Inside the tabernacle, there's, there's the Holy of Holies, and just outside of that is the holy place. Only the priests can go in the holy place. Twice a day, morning, night. And the light of the holy place was this candelabra, we, we call it a menorah today, it has seven 
arms representing the seven days of creation. So it's hearkening back to the light of the world. But it's not the light of the world. It's the light of a building. And in the Bible, we go book one, two, three, the light of the world, the light of the nation, the light of a building. It's getting darker in here. And that bothered the prophets. They knew that the light didn't shine as bright as it used to. So one of the prophets, Isaiah, he predicted a day when, in fact, the, the light would get brighter. He prophesied, and Matthew picks up his prophecy and, and relating it to the birth of Jesus. He said, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. So what Isaiah is seeing and what Matthew is saying is that when Jesus was born, the light got brighter. It wasn't just a candelabra for the priest in a building. It was back to the light of a nation. The people in the land would see a great light. Fast forward, John 8. Jesus does not say he's the light of the nation. He says, I am the light of the world. That's big. I don't know if you can believe that or not. I don't think they believed it. Most of them didn't. But how would you guess the rabbis would respond when a carpenter from Nazareth claimed to be the light of the world, God himself? Well, let's read it. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 12, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So how, how do you think they're going to respond? Like a, a big blow up? Actually, it's interesting. I never would have predicted this. Verse 13, the Pharisees challenged him, here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. What does that have to do with the light of the world? Answer, nothing. Because his claim was so big, how do you even wrap your brain around that? So rather than going with Jesus, they go back a year and a half. They're saying, you, you testify about yourself. 18 months earlier, you can check it out, John 5, 31, Jesus said, if I, if I testified about myself, my witness would be invalid. So they're going back and going, whoa, 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 wait a second, you're testifying about yourself, that's not valid, a year and a half ago you said, some of you are going, yep, that's my marriage. Year and a half ago you did that, a year and a half, what are you bringing that up now for? Some people want to take you back to your past, and that's important. Because Jesus doesn't want you stuck in your past. He wants you moving to your future. And he offers you this spiritual sextant. And if you can just get the light of Christ, the light of the world aligned with your own horizon right now, you will know the way that you need to go. This debate was ugly. I mean, you can read it yourself. They're, they devolved into name-calling. They're looking at Jesus and saying, you're, a, you're crazy. You're a demon possessed. You're, you're a Samaritan. That's a bad insult back then. And Jesus actually, like, he retaliates. He does his own name calling. He says, you know, you're a liar. They're straight up. You're a liar. And, and you're a liar because your daddy's a liar and your daddy's the devil. Woo! <laughs> That's going to go over like a hot dog at Hanukkah. It's just an explosive debate. Not unlike social media today. Have you noticed? It's ugly out there. People are throwing words all around and 
they're name calling and it's just, it's just an ugly debate. And I suspect that what Jesus does is gonna make an impact to someone here today. Because it goes beyond the debate. And Jesus wants to talk to you. He wants to engage you. I know there's all these voices going around, there's all this heat of an argument, but Jesus wants you to hear his promise for you. Verse 31, to the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Can anybody use a little freedom right now? Maybe right now you feel like, man, I'm adrift on an ocean. I could use a spiritual sextant to find my way. We're in the middle of a pandemic, but not just one pandemic. We have three. The first pandemic is obvious. It's a physical pandemic of the COVID virus. Everybody knows about that. But because of COVID, we shut down our businesses and communities. And because of that, there's an economic crisis. And because of the economic crisis, the medical crisis, and the social distancing, there's also a spiritual crisis. You can call it a social crisis or a mental health crisis, but, but it basically comes down to the spirit in us is hurting like never before. You could actually document this with tangible statistics. You heard Ashley talk last week about why we are regathering. We, we know that because of the pandemic, that we have to be extra careful with masks and social distancing. We, we get that. But we also understand that people are hurting spiritually as never before. The federal hotline, like if you have an emergency crisis, there's a, a, a number that you can call to say, I'm hurting, I'm in trouble, I need help. The federal hotline for crisis has increased its volume of calls in the last five months by 1,000%. In, in a normal year, one in five Americans have a mental health issue. It could be depression, it could be uh, anger management, stress, anxiety, suicidal thoughts, one in five. But the Kaiser Foundation, which is the national health organization, they wanted to know what are we really up against as a culture? So they did a nationwide survey. It is not now one in five Americans who are having a health, mental health crisis. It is one in two. So it's you. And if it's not you, it's the person sitting next to you. If it's not either one of you, it's down the road, there's four people having a mental health crisis. Right here in the state of Arizona, the first six months of this year compared to the first six months of last year, suicides have risen by 162%. I'm not okay with that. Calls to Child Protective Services have decreased by 90%. You think that's good, right? No, that's terrible. Because we all know that when mom and dad are under stress, when mom and dad are having economic difficulties, when we're all social distancing, child abuse goes up, not down. So why are calls decreasing by 90%? Because when schools are closed and churches are closed and daycares are closed, we don't have eyes on the most vulnerable. We're just not okay with that. 
And we determined as a church, we are an essential service to meet head on the spiritual pandemic of our nation. That's why we're here. And if you're watching online and you're thinking, yeah, but I'm not ready to regather, or maybe you, you are in a category of those who are most vulnerable, listen, there's, this is a zero judgment zone. We, we don't judge you at all. We are just no longer willing to stand by and do nothing when there's a spiritual pandemic attacking our nation. You know, I, I have a, a friend of mine who is really struggling right now with some addictions in his adult life because of some trauma in his childhood. And as we sat kind of strategizing, what do we do next and, and how are we gonna overcome this together? There's two questions that he had. And my guess is that a lot of you have those two questions right now. Some of you, in fact, this is your first time to CCV and whatever campus you're on, you came because you thought, man, I I don't know if I believe in this whole Jesus thing, but I I know I need something. I I know I need some direction in my life because I'm just, I'm out on an ocean drifting. The questions that he had are these. Am I worthy and is he able? Am I worthy? Because I know my past, I know the baggage that I have, I know the people that I've hurt, I know the sins that I've committed and caused. Am I worthy of Jesus' love? Second question is, is he able? Because I'm bringing a truckload of junk to him. Is Jesus really who he says he is and able to bear the weight that I will throw at him? Those are the two questions. And Jesus, this is interesting, he answers, Both of those questions in a text that is 2,000 years old. And I just believe that Jesus is still speaking these words to people today, right here, right now. As we take the light of the world and align that light with our horizon in the present moment, here's what Jesus will say to you. Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. (laughs) Who doesn't know that? Like seriously, we, we've all experienced that. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it to ev- forever. And if you make Jesus your Lord, he calls you a son of God, a daughter of God. There, there is no way he's letting you out of the family. Maybe, you, maybe you're hurting or maybe you've got a past that you can't get past, but he can get past it for you because he believes in you. Jesus said this, I hope you can believe it. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Do you want to be free? If you do, the only question is, is he able? Is he everything he claimed to be? (laughs) Well, again, back to the debate. They are throwing like insults back and forth. And the topic of Abraham comes up. In verse 53, they say, are you greater than our father Abraham? (laughs) He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Oh, you have no clue who he thinks he is. Like seriously, in the middle of the temple, the rabbis are saying, who do you think? You think you're greater than Abraham? Mm? Keep going. Seriously, keep going. Because Abraham, he is the father of the Jewish religion, right? 
And by default then, the father of the Christian faith. And he's the father of Islam through Ishmael. He's a big deal. But he's not close to Jesus. So it's time for an irrelevant story. Uh, I went to dinner with my brother. He's a scientist, lives in Denver. I was up in the area. I said, hey, Dave, you want to go out to dinner? Yeah, let's go out to dinner. Uh, My brother is not a Christian. In fact, he's not even close (laughs) to being a Christian. He is a a literal genius scientist. And there at dinner, we're, we're talking, and he said something that really stunned me. We were talking about birthdays. And which birthday uh, in your life is the biggest birthday? Is it 16? Is it 21? Is it 30, 40, 50? Like, which is the greatest birthday, the most significant birthday? You know what he said? 34. (laughs) You're bizarre, dude. And he goes, no, no, seriously, 34 has to be the biggest birthday because at that point, you have lived longer than Jesus. He's got a point. Jesus was crucified at 33. Hey, congratulations. You went 33 years without being crucified. Happy birthday. And I thought, darn it, why didn't I think of that? That's genius. And he's not even a Christian. But then he got serious. And the man who doesn't believe in Jesus with a straight face said, there is no one in the history of the world that has made near the impact as Jesus Christ. Now, if Dave could be transported back 2,000 years, because he's squirrely, I know what he would do. He's sitting there and Jesus, they ask him, who do you think you are? Are you greater than Abraham? He would have shot his hand up and go, "Uh, excuse me, I'm from the future. Yes. I mean, it's not even a question in the future who's greater, Abraham. Jesus, by far, is greater. Of course, Dave wasn't there. So you just have to trust Jesus on this one, not Dave. Here's what Jesus said. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. And they replied, "Uh, (laughs) you're not 50 years old. They said, and and you've seen Abraham? And what Jesus says next is a mic drop moment. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. I am what? What? That's it, just I am. And you went, what what are you talking about? I am, I am what? If you don't get it, they did. I promise you, they did. See, they're Hebrews, and they spoke Hebrew. And in the Hebrew language, you know what I am sounds like? Yahweh. No way. Yahweh. (laughs) Sorry, it's a dad joke. I can't help myself. (laughs) He is claiming to be God. And in the very next verse, they pick up stones and try to stone him. Is it any wonder? You claim to be God. The question is, is it true? In just a couple verses, chapter 9, verse 5, he's going to make the claim again, I am the light of the world. So you have, it's actually three times in the New Testament, you read the phrase, light of the world. Chapter 9, verse 5, chapter 8, verse 12. And in between that, It is a nasty debate. Do you believe him? You probably know about debates. Like It's obvious for most people as you look at a debate, at the end of the debate, nobody's mind has changed. It's just solidified. Have you noticed that? And so you can have all the arguments and all the name calling and all the logic you want, 
At the end of the day, people go, yeah, I still believe what I believe, only even stronger because you're a jerk. Whether or not you believe that Jesus is the light of the world will have nothing to do with the debate. It always has to do with behavior. John 8, 12, I'm the light of the world. John 9, 5, I'm the light of the world. Between that is a debate, but outside the bookends, there's behavior. Jesus treats people in a very specific way. Before 8, 12, it's a woman. After 9, 5, it's a man. The woman is caught in adultery. The man has been born blind. The woman, like literally caught in adultery. Think about that. Actually, Come to think of it, don't think about that. How do you catch someone in adultery unless you're a peeping Tom? That's just, that's not right. But they bring this woman into the temple. The guy, I don't know where he is, but they bring her in and they throw her in front of Jesus and say, Jesus, the law says that someone caught in adultery should be stoned. What do you say? What's well, a trap? Because they know how Jesus treats people with compassion. There's no way he's gonna say, well, just kill her, except he does. He says, well, if that's what the law says, then stoner. But he knew what else the law said. No one could be convicted of a capital crime unless there were two eyewitnesses. And if there's two eyewitnesses who catch someone in the, the act of adultery, then it was a setup, and they are no longer innocent. So Jesus asked this, made this simple statement, let him who is out without sin cast the first stone. Check mate. And all you hear next is the dull thud of stones hitting the ground. And when everyone had left, he looked at the woman and said, is no one here to condemn you? She said, no one, sir. I said, well, I can't condemn you either. I'm not an eyewitness, so go in peace and sin no more. Jesus treated a sinner with compassion. Fast forward to John 9, he has this blind man who he's never seen a day in his life and Jesus puts mud in his eyes and has him go wash to see. He heals, he gives a man sight. And I notice that whenever Jesus meets someone who is sick, whether it's sick with a physical ailment or a mental illness or an economic catastrophe, when Jesus finds someone who is sick, He encounters them with power. He gives them strength. And whenever Jesus finds someone who is a sinner, he encounters them with compassion. And the reason I believe that Jesus is the light of the world is because no one else in the world treats people like that. We flip it around. When someone is a sinner, we we believe they're morally corrupt. What do we do? Well, look on Facebook, it's obvious. We come at them with power, not compassion, power. And you gotta straighten up your life and you gotta repent and you gotta look at how wrong you are. Jesus doesn't do that. He gives them forgiveness. On the other hand, we come to people who are, who are ill and sick and we go, oh man, I'm so sorry. We give those people compassion. Look, if I'm sick, I don't need you to feel sorry for me. I need you to take me to a doctor. If I'm without a job, I don't need you to feel sorry for me. Give me a job. I don't want you to pine over me. Watch my kids so that I can take care of my life. If we are going to be the light of the world like Jesus is the light of the world, 
It will be when we flip the script on how we treat people. Now, I mentioned that there are three times we read this phrase, lie to the world, lie to the world. John 8, 12, John 9, 5. Does anybody remember the last time you read lie to the world? Third. Jesus said, you may recognize this. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. And he's calling us, church, to be his light in this world. Jesus came to our world. And, and like, a, like a spiritual section, the light of God came to our world, to our horizon, in our time, so that we could find our way. And now we, church, we are the light of the world. If we treat those who are sick, whether it's a physical sickness or an emotional or mental sickness, whether it is an economic difficulty they're going through, we need to give people strength and power, not compassion. And those who are lost in their own sin, driven by their own addictions, trapped and drifting at sea, instead of condemning them, instead of going on some social campaign, we need to show some compassion and some forgiveness. Guys, we, we are CCV. We've been in this valley for nearly 40 years. And our, our, our mission hasn't changed. We want to win this valley for Jesus Christ. Jesus said, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. And all around this valley are, are mountains. You've got the superstitions over in the East Valley. Over in the West Valley, you've got the white tanks. McDowell's to the north and South Mountain to the south. All around us are mountains, and you've seen lights on them. Because you put a light on a hill, and everybody sees it. We are in the middle of three pandemics. As a church, we have got to be the light of our world. We've got to take the hill and stand on the high ground showing compassion to sinners and strength to the sick. We've got to be the solution to people's problems. That is the only way that the light of Jesus can continue to be the light of the world. God's calling you, church, to move into our community and be the difference maker by treating people differently than everybody else treats them. So our, our challenge today is pretty simple. It really is simple. It's not easy, it's simple. When I mention the sick, put a name to that. Someone you know. They're struggling financially. They're having a mental health crisis. They have the virus. What can you do this week to give them strength? That's it. Or maybe it's someone that you know this is trapped in an addiction. They're struggling. Sin isn't just what you do, it's been what's done to you, and this person needs your compassion and forgiveness, not your power and judgment. It's too, it's too easy at, at this point for someone just to say, oh man, that was a great message, it, it, really, it, it really moved me. Look, I, I don't care if you're moved. I care if you're moving. 
there are people who need you to start moving and bringing the light of the world to their horizon so they can find direction to make it home. And I want to give you just some space in the service to actually think through that, to put a name on one side or the other. I don't care if it's someone who's sick or someone who's, who's sinner. But we're going to take communion together. And as you peel back the cellophane on the top of this, you're going to move from the I am the light of the world statement of Jesus to I am the bread of life. That was the first I am statement of Jesus. And as you take his body, you are letting him come into you. And if you're at home watching, you can go get some bread or some crackers, whatever you have available. And as you, as you peel back the tinfoil, you'll see the juice representing the blood of Christ. And again, at home, you can go right now and get some juice or some wine, whatever you have that would represent the blood of Christ. As you take Jesus into you, you need to pray about the name the person you know who needs your strength so that the light of the world can come out of you. Holy Father, we receive your body, we receive your blood in us, and our prayer is simple. Would you give us the nourishment so that your light can come out of us? We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.